Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Welcome back to Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. I'm Brett King. This week, we're going to introduce you to a couple of our latest Provoke FM family podcasts. You may be familiar with Emerge and the work that Jen Tesher has been doing at the Financial Health Network. But this week, she interviews Shamina Singh, the founder and executive vice president of sustainability at MasterCard with over 20 years of experience in the space. And they get to talk with the insights on an equitable future. My guest today, Shamina Singh, is the Executive Vice President of Corporate Sustainability at MasterCard, and she's also the founder of the company's Center for Inclusive Growth. For much of her career, Shamina has been at the center of the global financial inclusion movement, where her unique ability to forge public-private partnerships has produced big results. She's now focused on bringing the government and the private sector together to create a financial inclusion commission in the United States. Shamina, welcome to Emerge Everywhere. Really glad to be here, Jen. Great to see you. Yeah, same here. So you founded the MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth back in 2014. It feels like a long time ago already um, (laughs) as a way to drive the company's social impact. Uh, Talk to us a little bit about what does the center do and uh, why did MasterCard decide to create this in the first place? Well, again, thanks for having me on. It's always a pleasure to be with you. and talk about financial health and with the founder of the Financial Health Network. What an honor for me. So we founded the Center for Inclusive Growth uh, at the end of 2013, beginning of 2014, mostly because we had to. We were, um, I originally joined MasterCard uh, to digitize uh, social subsidy programs for government. And in the process of doing that work, uh, started to see that the lessons we were learning, sort of on the front lines of financial inclusion, Um, weren't being taken up anywhere else. And so we sort of went to the leadership of the company and and actually to the MasterCard board and shared some of the things we were finding through these um, government uh, digital subsidy programs. And they actually said, you know, why don't we create something that allows you to process the learnings catalog them and be a place that people don't have to reinvent the wheel that want to do this work. And so uh, really it became a lesson um, and a practice of necessity uh, for us because we really wanted to make sure that as the world sort of went further on into financial inclusion than we even were at that point, um, that they were uh, not going to have to reinvent the wheel, especially I think private sector companies who were just getting into the space, obviously following people like you and public sector organizations who had had financial inclusion as part of their um, thinking for uh, a long time. And uh, just knowing what I know now about companies like MasterCard and others, um, it's important to be as efficient as you can when doing any of this. So that was really the founding story of the center. And so uh, the center does a lot of different things today. Tell us a little bit more about that. 
it's a really, I think, a, re- a really interesting model. You know, we've evolved since 2014 um, from that place of, you know, really starting out as research, but building on the idea that you really want to start from an evidence base for any work you're doing. So the shorthand is we really think of ourselves as the philanthropic hub of the company. Um, but we have a model of doing this work that relies on uh, insights. So in evidence base and research, it relies on impact. So we go to programmatic work and we now have uh, the MasterCard Impact Fund that uh, actually funds a lot of that work. We have uh, impact and um, insights to impact to um, influence. And so this is this piece around once we build the evidence base, we start to learn, we invest in some programs, we continue to learn and scale. We want to make sure, again, that people don't have to reinvent the wheel. So we call it influence, which is we do convene. We try to talk to people like you. We try to publish to make sure that we are influencing the dialogue and the conversation around this work um, through investments. So it's a lot of it, but that, but the, but the basic notion is to really make sure that we're advancing action on inclusive growth. And that's the piece I think that I think differentiates us a little bit. I think, you know, everybody wants to make a difference and have action, but we really try to be very disciplined in our approach and are constantly pushing ourselves and asking the question of, so what? Um, and so and by asking ourselves, so what? Almost in every conversation, we get to a place of what is the action? What's the impact? What's the outcome? Yeah, it makes so much sense for a company like MasterCard, which is ultimately a technology company, um, a payments company, to you know think about extending that capability to improve um, improve uh, inclusion um, and improve the situation in the world. You know, we're seeing a lot more uh, commitment to ESG uh, from companies of all sizes and. On the surface, the promises are great, but the question becomes, how do we ensure that there's real impact uh, and that the impact is hitting the communities and the people who need it most? Uh, I'd love to hear you reflect on how you're thinking about that at MasterCard, particularly given that the way in which you're best able to give back or to engage um, isn't always the things that people most think about, like feeding the hungry or, you know, housing the homeless. It's more nuanced than that. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a great question. Um, and it's, it's also a reason why we started the center for inclusive growth was, um, our remit, uh, is really to leverage the assets of MasterCard for social and environmental impact. What does that mean? That means that, um, in addition to capital, so traditional philanthropy, which is sort of uh, what, what many companies have done for forever, um, we really took a different approach and said, we have to actually analyze the assets of MasterCard in a way um, that will allow us to make the biggest difference and have the biggest impact. Um, and that's where we sort of said, okay, that means data and data analytics. It certainly means capital. It means the technology. It also means our network. The fact that MasterCard is in over 210 economies, you know, with billions of uh, cardholders transacting trillions of dollars, that network was a major asset for the company as well. Um, And then our people, of course, and the expertise. And 
once we sort of looked at it from that perspective, um, certainly the philanthropy and the capital and the creation of the impact fund has been an enormous enabler and um, accelerator, but it's allowed us to target our interventions in a way that um, for us, I think are more meaningful, but also for every, for the world, more impactful. Um, and I think that that's the piece that as companies start to do this ESG work, I sort of think, you know, start with the things that are in some respects easiest to your company and more much more aligned with the capabilities of your company so that you achieve that comfort around doing the work um, in a way that actually makes a difference. And then of course um, you have to measure it and report it and all of those things. But that's sort of been our journey, I think. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, you've mentioned a couple of times now just what an incredible incredible remit you have given the global footprint of MasterCard. Uh, um, I'm curious, though, how does the work play out in the United States? Um, and, um, you know, you and I know each other for a long time, largely because of global conversations around financial inclusion. Um, and when you come to a country like the United States, um, that journey is a little bit different, I think, um, or maybe it isn't. Maybe it's exactly the same. Um, tell me more about how you're thinking about how the work plays out here in the U.S.? Yeah, again, I think it's such a great question. I'll say that, you know, when we first started um, this journey around financial inclusion for MasterCard with folks like the U.N. and and others and Queen Maxim of the Netherlands, we made a commitment um, fairly early on to bring 500 million people into the formal economy. Hmm. We reached that goal actually during COVID and decided to double down and made and and re-upped our commitment to bring a billion people into the former economy with a focus on uh, small business, particularly women-owned businesses. And uh, when we were doing all of that work, one of the things that we realized also fairly early on is that the lessons we were learning outside of the United States um, actually had a lot of relevance inside the United States. Um, So Uh, the idea of gig workers, uh, relatively new in the United States, but not new everywhere else in the world in terms (laughs) of Asia and, you know, multiple jobs and and things like that. So the idea of trying to understand what a benefit system would look like, um, a portable benefit system would look like in the United States was something that we started working on here. But I'll tell you the thing that I I think has been... um, absent from the conversation is this notion of a a national financial inclusion strategy for Mm. the United States. You know, Jen, as as you do know, in in many parts of the world, many countries have financial inclusion strategies that they have drafted, that they are um, uh, working towards, that they, you know, have policy around, that they work with private sector company around. And it's this idea of having a plan that you can reach your targets. You can think about women. You can think about the uh, the folks who need access to formal financial services. The United States actually doesn't have um, a national, a formalized national financial inclusion strategy. And so I think that's one of the things that um, I know you care a lot about, but it's certainly uh, something that I think would really help accelerate and focus the solutions around what's happening in the United States when it comes to things like um, certainly income inequality, but access to financial services, access to financial education, um, you know, access to 
really allowing Americans to reach their productivity. So I think for me, at least, um, and I'd be interested in your perspective, this notion of creating a national financial inclusion strategy so that we build some structure, a plan, and a focus to accelerate um, our advancement, even in the United States around financial services. Yeah. Well, you know me, I'm all about what gets measured gets managed. So the idea of having a framework uh, of some kind uh, that helps shape the uh, role that the federal government can play here um, and holds us accountable, I think is always a good thing. Um, What's so interesting to me, though, is if I'm not mistaken, we're one of the only G20 company countries that doesn't have a financial inclusion uh, strategy, national financial inclusion strategy. And I, I think one of the other benefits or opportunities of us doing so is uh, the uh, influence on the world stage. Uh, you know, there are, there are countries who are far ahead of us in this work. So I don't mean to suggest that We don't have things to learn from others, but particularly when you're thinking about it from a systemic approach and creating, frankly, the global systems that are needed to connect the dots and enable people to have full inclusion around the world. um, I think when the United States speaks, a lot of people listen. Uh, And so I think there's a there's also a a sort of a competitive competitiveness and global leadership uh, opportunity for the United States uh, if we were to create a, a commission. I agree. I think, a, I, I, yeah, and I think a commission is probably the straightest path to get there because I think what it would allow us to do is really focus on, you know, again, getting our own house in order. The federal agencies sort of, you know, lining up to say, what did they have within their own inventory of things they should be doing? You know, so much of this work, I think, is because we have fragmented systems and you know, and, and we saw this during COVID. I mean, yep. you know, one technology system didn't talk to another technology system, didn't talk to another technology system, which meant in the end, the people who really needed the help weren't getting it in time or weren't getting it nearly as fast or as efficiently as they could because of a technology situation, which in my mind is um, does such a disservice to our own people in, in the country. But I think that, you know, we're at this really interesting time when we're experiencing all of this uh, inequality, I think, in the United States and, and frankly, around the world. But we also have this amazing technology, this technological revolution that is also mm-hmm. happening with, you know, between AI and machine learning and, you know, blockchain, all of these really great fancy things, right? But all of these people are still, you know, just now becoming included into the formal economy. And so I think, you know, we've, we've often said you can't really have the internet of everything without the inclusion of everyone. And I think that that's kind of where we end up or we land is let's make sure that we're using all the technology to work for us, not against us. And, mm-hmm. um, and I think that that's the work of people like you, Jen, and the Financial Health Network. It's in work of us at the Center for Inclusive Growth. It's the work of other purpose-driven leaders and companies and, 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 and other organizations to ensure that the benefits of an expanding economy um, are delivered to everyone. And yeah, I, think I think that at our core, that's that's the thing that we're trying to do here. Yeah, I think that's 
well said. Now, you'd never know from everything you've said so far that you weren't a deep technical payments expert. But the fact is you started your career in politics, if I'm not mistaken, working on a gubernatorial election in Texas. Um, and then you held some roles in the federal government. Tell us more about sort of how you got from there to here um, and really what you learned from that experience of, um, of uh, if you will, kitchen table politics. Yeah. So I think the biggest uh, I did, I started out in college, actually, before I even moved to Texas. Um, I worked for the first um, African-American governor of the state of Virginia, a guy named Doug Wilder. So the political organizing was something that has been and social social justice work has been something that's sort of been part and parcel of my own experience. Um, And I think that that comes out of being, you know, the daughter of immigrants. And Mm. um, and I think that, you know, for me, this has all been about real life stuff. Like it's not a theory. It's not something that's removed. It's um, it's the work that I've seen and the way I was raised and where I was raised and all of that, because I've been in situations where this stuff is about life and death. Um, you know, so financial health, economic empowerment, access to good wage, a living wage, all of these things are, um, are real for me. And so I think for me, the first entry point was around political, um, organizing and political power. And then, um, sort of, uh, continuing that work, but also then making the connection to economic um, independence and economic empowerment and understanding the connection between public sector work and the role that policy plays and private sector work and the role that industry plays in ensuring that, you know, you've got to have both along with a very strong social sector in order to ensure that the individual um, reaches his or her, you know, full capacity. So the technology and the technical stuff certainly has come uh, as I've been at MasterCard, but it's come at, again, sort of trying to understand the various levers of uh, influence to make sure that people live their best lives. And that's kind of why I'm motivated to do the work. Yeah. So one of my big heroes is Brian Stevenson from the Equal Justice Initiative. And one thing that he always talks about is the need to be proximate. Uh, and uh, even, you know, as an organization like ours, where we not we don't do direct service work, we're working with companies and organizations and getting them to do uh, more and better. Um, I know we have to work hard to stay proximate, to find opportunities to really understand what's going on in people's lives. It's one of the reasons why we do as much consumer research as we do. Um, given the role that you're in now, how do you stay proximate? How do you make sure that you're being informed by real life, as you say? Yeah, it's funny. You know, when we, we've we been doing the work at uh, a MasterCard around financial inclusion for a long time, but one of the things that, you know, we uncovered early on in our own journey was the, the necessity of ID. Like that was a surprise to me, right? Was that when you somebody accesses a bank account or when somebody buys a travel ticket or all the things that we take for granted, um, that at, at, at the time, there um, are still millions of people in the world that don't even have a basic identification. Um, so they cannot transact at all because they don't have a driver's license or an ID card or something that says, I am Shamina Singh, so I can transact in the world. Um, and that was a, you know, it was a surprise, I guess, at MasterCard. But then I was telling my mother about it. And I was saying, you know, I'm so surprised that 
we're building these identity solutions now because MasterCard has realized that people need an ID. So we're building out distributed ID and what, what does that mean? And all of these things. And she's like, she said, that's so funny. She said, I was born without a birth certificate. So I didn't have ID for a long time until I, you know, uh, went to college. And I was like, what are I, I just, you know, I was like, what are you talking about? And she said in the village, she was born into a small village in India. And when she was growing up, um, the way that they kept the, um, the birthdays was literally her mother would tie a knot in a rope. And that was the way that they, um, you know, knew how old you were basically. And, um, so she, so it was very like, okay, it was um, was one generation removed. My mother did not have, you know, ID until later in life and her birth was tracked by a, a knot in a rope. So was her sister and so were others. And so it just became very real for me, um, in terms of what this work was doing and what an amazing world that we live in that, you know, my mother from, you know, a small village in India to sort of me sitting here talking to you today, you know, one generation, what that's meant. Um, to me, it's, it, it keeps me very humble, but also really grateful for, Mm. you know, the opportunity. What an incredible story. You know, I'm now beginning to understand that the combination of your, um, your sort of time in politics where, you know, you really need to understand the constituents of the person you're working for, coupled with your time now in the private sector, um, really uh, gives you an interesting worldview. Um, But you're very good at building those public-private partnerships, thinking about how to bring people together in relationship. Talk to me a little bit about why they're so important for this work in particular. Um, and what's your secret for doing it? How, how do you, how do you, how do you so successful, um, in bringing those kinds of partnerships together? Well, I appreciate you saying that. I think that, um, uh, you know, I think that the thing people miss out on, um, is while they're judging each other, they miss out on the opportunity to actually work together. And so that was, I think one lesson, maybe, I don't know what to attribute it to, but I think maybe being the daughter of immigrants where um, we, I wasn't raised to understand the social norms in a way that uh, maybe people who uh, are here for generations have. And so we were discovering them in real time. And so Mm -hmm. in that, I think the gift of that is um, you don't know what's possible, but you don't know what's impossible and you don't really judge. You're I mean, I was curious. And so I think that how that translates into partnership is to really look at it as sort of objectively as you can and say, what are the assets of one organization, one individual, one company? What are the assets of another organization, individual and company? How can we marry up these assets in a way that creates something bigger? And so I think that um, that very basic notion of how do you put you know, put things together in a way to equal something bigger is just a a way of organizing that I think serves, serves all of us better. But when it comes to public and private, it's the only way to achieve scale. Like in philanthropy, you know, we talk a lot about this, like, you know, philanthropy is one part of capital, but it's not the capital set. It's if you really want to make change, you have to combine philanthropic capital, maybe as the catalyst, but then you get into more commercially sustainable work over time so that when the philanthropy goes away, 
there's a business model in place to sustain. Um, and one of the things that I learned, I think, you know, I, I used to uh, work with um, nursing home workers in Pennsylvania. I worked for an organization called the Service mm-hmm. Employees International Union. And one of the things that I learned from mostly women who were nursing home workers was they didn't need me or anybody sort of telling them uh, what to do with their money. They just needed the money, <laughs> the, right. the capital themselves. And I think that, you know, really trying to understand that, you know, they have something that they need to do and give. We have something. If you bring it all together, there's a way to align incentives so that everybody wins. And I think that it, it may sound naive and it may be naive. I don't know, but it's it's the way that we have been operating. And um, so far, it seems to be yielding good results. Mm. We are living in challenging, uncertain times um, where trust is at an all-time low. And yet we these partnerships that you've talked about are needed more than ever. So um, what's on the horizon for you at the MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth vis-a-vis these partnerships? And, and where do you see traction or opportunities uh, given the moment we're living in now? Uh, I think it's a great question. I think it's a hard question. I think that what we saw during COVID was the first time in a long time that people slid back into poverty. For you know many years, we, we we were named the center for the center for inclusive growth because we were actually on a cycle where people were the economies were growing, and we were trying to ensure that people were their economic lives were improving along with the growth. I think with COVID, what we saw for the first time is now people have slid back into um, uh, you know lower economic situations. And I think for us right now, what we're trying to do is ensure stabilization. And then um, if we can help with the stabilization, we can start to help with, again, that trajectory back uh, into growth. The opportunity, I think, though, that we have is to create, at least in the United States, I think to create a strategy where, you know, we talk about building back better. We talk about all these things that the moment when we're coming back from COVID hopefully will never happen again. And so can we align the objectives and the incentives of purpose-driven private sector companies, of public policy, of social sector organizations, so that we're coming back in a way that is more beneficial rather than less beneficial? And I think that requires some intentionality that we're working a lot on um, at the Center for Inclusive Growth. And the last thing I'll say around that, because I think it's important, is that data is, you know, you hear it all the time, data is the new this, data is the new that. We're trying to create the field of data science for social impact. We started on this journey um, very early on in the center's inception. The idea that there are now data haves and data have-nots among social sector organizations, among sectors, I think is an idea that I want to plant here. Hopefully we can talk about it uh, in more detail another time. But I do think, uh, you know, data inequality is almost as important, if not more important than income inequality. Because if you lose the capability to analyze data and understand data, um, you may lose a generation 
of, uh, of understanding. And so we're spending a lot of time uh, at the Center for Inclusive Growth really thinking about uh, data for social impact and what we need to do to invest and intervene in that space. Say more. Um, what, what can one do in that arena? So we have, um, you know, like I said very early in the conversation, one of the big assets of, you know, MasterCard and many companies, frankly, is data and data analytics. And we came out early on with a framework around how we think about data as uh, an asset. And that framework, we call them the data responsibility principles, um, basically says that, you know, you should own your data, you should control your data, and you should benefit from your data. And that's the way we're building our products and services at MasterCard. What we've done sort of at the center side is to, um, you know, we created an organization in partnership with the Rockefeller Foundation called data.org. And the idea there is to build out the social sector capacity, uh, uh, the data capacity of social sector organizations um, to realize the power of their own data. So we are creating use cases out of data.org to really build a model so that social sector organizations like the Financial Health Network, like any other organization can sort of come to a place and say, hey, we need to get our data maturity assessment done. What do we need to build out our data capacity? At the same time, we're also investing in talent because there is such a pipeline of data scientists that are so, it's so competitive and we need to have more and more. But what they're not necessarily receiving is the training around data science for social impact. And so we're doing a lot of investment um, with uh, universities to make sure that they're getting that training. And it, for example, we just announced last week a partnership with Howard University, which is building out there. They've created a new data science center at Howard. And um, what we're doing is partnering with them to ensure that we invest in, uh, you know, looking at bias in, in AI so that, uh, you know, what we see around African-Americans being excluded from financial services or biased, against, you know, the financial uh -huh. services biasing against minorities um, is something that we look at. But I think that's been an area that, uh, you know, again, I hope to see more you know, philanthropies get involved with, um, more companies start to realize that they have an obligation to think about their data in a different way, that people start to, you know, we see it all the time. People have to understand that, you know, they, they have to own and think about and be responsible also for the data that they're producing. Right. Well, given that MasterCard is both a technology company and a data company in many ways, yeah. it's really remarkable to see the stance that you've taken uh, in this work, uh, because it's one thing for a data company to think about how it should treat the data it has, but it's another to really be uh, funding and supporting the development of a broader sector to encourage the appropriate use of data and to really take a customer-centric approach uh, and state so unequivocally uh, that you know, people need to own and control their own data. That that is not a universally held perspective, uh, and so I give Mastercard um, and you a lot of credit for that. Thank you. No, I I hope that you know this is part of the the advice I had um, you know from our CEO at the time, Ajay Banga, who has now gone on to do um, other things. But when he was there, he said, you know, when you create the Center for Inclusive Growth try to move as fast as you can so that 
as you create a framework for others to plug into, you're creating the right incentives. He said, because one, you could create a center that kind of does things the way it's always been done. And, and that would be kind of interesting. But if you create a policy or an incentive or, or, a, or a program that creates competition for the right things, boy, wouldn't that be a really cool thing to figure out? And the pleasure that I've had working with Michael Meebach, who is the, the relatively new CEO, but he's been at MasterCard for a very long time, is that he thinks in a way that says, there's technology is neutral. And if we can create incentives around technology, and in this case, data, that incentivizes a race to the top instead of a race to the bottom, then why wouldn't we do that? And I think that's the freedom and the flexibility that if you get into a place, you know, a creative space, an innovative space that sort of relies on inclusive innovation with the, you know, with a CEO like Michael, you can sort of have have this kind of runway to, to think in this way. And I, I do think that that's, um, I hopefully it's, it's a novel way, but I hopefully it won't be the only way. And I hope that a lot more companies start to think this way. Yeah. Shamina Singh, thank you for joining me on Emerge Everywhere. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Hello, listeners. I'm Brett King, the host of Breaking Banks. Together, myself and Dr. Richard Petty, have recently released our latest best-selling book, The Rise of Techno-Socialism. We look at how inequality, artificial intelligence, and climate change are going to shape our world moving forward. During the pandemic, the wealth of the world's billionaires ballooned. The richest 1% added $1.6 trillion to their wealth, meaning that they own more wealth than the bottom 90% of Americans today. Unemployment skyrocketed during the pandemic, but artificial intelligence could disrupt up to 80% of the jobs today. These new industries we are creating will face labor shortages because we aren't training our students with the right skills. By 2050, we'll need to produce 70% more food to feed the 9 billion inhabitants of the planet. But we lost 40% of our farmland to erosion and pollution in the last 50 years. By 2050, 570 global cities face inundation from sea rise. Miami, Guangzhou, New York, Calcutta and Shanghai are just the top five cities. If you want to know more about the solutions to these problems, check out The Rise of Techno-Socialism, our latest best-selling book. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or go to riseoftechnosocialism.com to find out more. Welcome to the future. Welcome back to Breaking Banks. In the second half of the show today, we wanted to introduce you to our latest podcast called The Futurists. Myself and Robert Turchek take us on a journey into the future with renowned futurist super forecasters, science fiction authors, uh, thought leaders, engineers creating the future of tomorrow. On this week's show, we introduce you to PJ Manny. She is a sci-fi author. She's worked on many uh, TV and movie projects around the world. And she's a leading thinker in terms of the impact of artificial intelligence in respect to ethics and, you know, how humanity will adapt. Let's uh, hear what PJ Manny has to say. PJ, um, you know, when we, we look at the, the world of, uh, you know, the future that you try and introduce people to, um, you know, maybe we can sort of start with a reference point going back to 
you know, the work of Alvin Toffler and, and so forth, the, the elements of how humanity adapts to these, um, you know, magnitudinous changes in terms of the way we live together, the, the way technology changes society and so forth. Um, you know, how do you think about that framing in terms of adaptation of humanity? Um, you know, what's needed to successfully transition these ages between these massive leaps in technology, for example? I'd like to just back up one second and and uh, ask that we call them the Tofflers because it was Alvin and Heidi, and Heidi was his full partner, and she I, gets yeah. forgotten, yeah, uh, especially I, considering I, the time they were writing. Um, you know, she she I I think the reason the Tofflers got so much right is because it was Alvin and Heidi. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you know? that's that's that you're absolutely right calling me out on that. And I, I do the same with Will and Ariel Durant when I talk about lessons from history, right? You know, it's because right. uh, it, it's always Will Durant, the, the, but but yeah, it was, was a team effort. I, I think that um, the Tofflers were phenomenal and they really saw what was coming, what we've already experienced and, and kind of where we are now. I think what's what we're going to be seeing in the biggest sense is we've seen the failure of, and I'm going to use the word globalism because everybody thinks it's a big bad now, um, but I'm going to recast it in another way in a moment. I think we're going to see more growth in coming together and community building. We're seeing it already, but we're going to see that accelerate because one of the things that the internet has done, unfortunately, has accelerated trends which were already happening. So we were coming into, I, I'm, a big, uh, I'm a big fan of Clear Dynamics and Peter Turchin. He became a friend. He actually proofread the Clear Dynamics section in Identity. Um, and um, I really agree with him in these 40 to 60 year cycles, certainly in the West, uh, and the reasons why we come together in social cohesion and the reasons why we dissolve that cohesion. And we've been in a period of dissolution for a while. And, you know, back in 2000, I want to say 2006, he, I think it was in nature, he printed the famous political violence article where he's like, okay, 2021, we're going to be in, you know, it's all, it's all going to hell in a handbasket. Uh, <laughs> and that's because he was watching these trends, much like the Tofflers had, of conflict building, more growth of haves and have-nots, uh, what they call elite overproduction in cleodynamics, which is the idea that the elites, there's so many elites now, they're so successful, there's everybody wants to be an elite, that suddenly the road to being an elite, whether it's a certain kinds of college educations, whether it's certain kinds of jobs, are now harder and harder to get. It's only so many chairs on the musical chairs of being in the elite. There are only so many people in so many positions, and yet the greasy pole gets greasier and greasier to get there. That's, that's not all. He says that um, as you overproduce elites, and you know, as you said, it's, it's musical chairs, there's not enough seats for all the people that the universities are producing who have elite yeah. qualifications. 
then some of those disaffected people who can't find a role, a constructive role, they start to take on a destructive role. And I think we're seeing examples of that even here in the United States and our political leadership where, you know, if, if I can't be constructive, then I'll be destructive. I'll bring it down. And, and we're systematically demolishing institutions. Again, it's not science fiction. This is the, this is the world that we're in right now in 2022. Exactly. And the thing you have to remember is it's a world we were in in the 60s. It was a world we were in in the 19-teens and 20s. It was a world we were in during the Civil War. I mean, you can just keep on going back every 40 to 60 years and you know, in, in American history. Um, and we're always in that kind of, of political and social turmoil. Um, the difference now is that we also had the 100-year cycle of pandemic at the same time. And we also had the 200-year cycle. It's called the secular cycle in cleodynamics, which has to be, which is about empire. And we are the empire. And so we're actually in, in a, a collision of three cycles, all hitting the bottom at the same time. Plus this, we, um, not, historically anomalous levels of inequality. Yes, exactly. Um, which sort of takes us back to like the dark ages, you know, that's the last uh, reference point we have for this type of inequality. Ex Exactly. So we have the most extreme version right now. That's not to say we can't have a positive future because we can. It's just we have to redefine what success looks like. What does success look like as an individual, as a, again, individual, family, community, nation, okay. world? And I like to look at success. Do you guys remember that the Powers of Ten movie that the, uh, Ray and Charles Eames made? Talk about again, again another great couple. Um, so the whole movie was about teaching exponential change you know, by by you know zooming in on the couple on the on the picnic blanket, zooming out to the edges of the universe, and back into a subatomic uh, particle in the skin of the woman on the blanket. And every time you came in or out by a factor of 10, it was a completely different view. And what I like to do is use that, like, like show that video and say to people, now look, there are solutions that work for the couple on the picnic blanket. There's a different solution that works for the west side of Chicago. There's a different solution that works for the United States. And there's a different solution that works for the planet. Now, let's try to come up with solutions that are actually win, 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 as opposed to, well, I just care about the individual solution because I'm a rugged individualist, or I just care about the social solution. If we can come up with solutions that address the issues, and I think we can, but you have to think that way first, we're gonna go a long way in creating positive futures again I do believe that that includes, and this goes back to ethics, having as many stakeholders as possible involved in decision-making. And to do that, you need an educated populace. So there are lots of moving parts in, in creating my little ideal future, but it's not even ideal. It's not utopia. That, that's that's a, a word I despise because it literally means no place. Like the joke about utopia is the word was created to say that it can never exist. What I believe in, and I'm writing about in the new mythos, is Michel Foucault, bring out the postmodernists, um, heterotopias, because heterotopias are, are places where we circumscribe the location. 
and we decide to do something in there, and it's a place of change. All heterotopias are where things can change. And just by saying, hey, we want to make life better for ourselves in our community, you've created a heterotopia. To go towards utopia is itself a heterotopia. And change can only happen in these locations where we kind of set ourselves apart for a moment and go, okay, so how do we do this? But you do it together. Let me see if I can play this back in a way that frames the conversation uh, with the theme of our show, which is all about futures and methodologies for thinking about the future. And what I just heard, uh, you gave us you gave us quite a dissertation there because you went from this sort of macro view of these periodic cycles, the, the Peter Turchin concepts of uh, cleodynamics, and um, and you gave us a kind of a broad view of what's repeating and what's happening from the past and all these, the collision, I guess, of all these negative incidents. So, so you have that to work with, right? That, that informs it. And then you kind of talked about um, a political framework that could scale from the personal to the local, to the national, to the global and so forth. Uh, and I'm sure we could continue to talk about things like, you know, environmental effects and, 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 uh, and globalization policies and so forth. Okay. So given all that stuff that's rattling around in your brain, <laughs> Aren't you in a way when you write when you sit down to write a book? Yeah, aren't you aren't you in a way when you sit down to write a book, aren't you creating your own heterotopia by saying, like, okay, I've got all this stuff. Now I need to process it and process it in a way where it's not a negative thing. It's not going to lead us to a dystopia. We're not writing some doomsday novel or blade runner or something. Instead, I want to posit a world where change is possible. What would that look like? Is that really what you're doing? Because I'm trying to get to methodology here, because that's always this the question is exactly what I'm doing. You nailed it. Thank you. Right um, on. Huzzah. <laughs> um, that's exactly what Achievement I'm Achievement unlocked. <laughs> what I'm, what I'm trying, because here's the nature of storytelling is you have to leave stuff out. This is the thing that, you know, is the hardest thing to learn about storytelling, because especially when you live in a brain like mine, <laughs> you want to tell people everything, but you can't. So you have to choose very carefully, the things that mean the most to your audience. And don't forget, I come out of movies and television. Yeah. So I am really acutely aware and respect the audience. And everything I do, whether it's, you know, a white paper to a corporation or a TV script or whatever, I'm really considering who my audience is and what it is that they're looking for in the story I'm about to tell them. I'm not going to tell them a lie. What I'm going to tell them is in the way that I can make that boundary, that heterotopia around the concepts, I'm going to leave a bunch of stuff out because they it will just confuse them. It's too much. So I'm going to focus on the things that they can understand and appreciate and need to hear because the other job as a storyteller is you meet people where they live. And another thing I just, you know, yes, the inside of my head is bizarre, but I know how to communicate to anyone because I remember that they're not me and I want them to have the best story possible. 
So your experience in pop culture, particularly working at a movie studio, is uh, is kind of an exercise in radical simplification, right? Because um, screenwriting is all about what you remove, you know, and streamlining the story because the words can't get in the way, particularly for international films uh, where it's going to be dubbed or, you know, you have to deal with the revoicing it, um, translating it and so forth. So how does that economy fit into your methodology? Because I imagine then you take all the amazing number of ideas you've got in your head, and now you need to put it through some sort of filter or some lens uh, to clarify it and simplify it and streamline it. So there are two things, character and, well, yeah, character and, and plot. You know, one th it's funny, when I think about technology, revolution originally started as a TV pilot that didn't sell. We'd sold a whole bunch, but that one couldn't get any interest on it. And it was a different technology, but the concept was the same. Basically, this rise of authoritarianism and oligarchy and Peter Bernhardt at the center of it. And a friend turned to me when I said, you know, I'm just going to write the book because she was like, well, why aren't you writing about neuroscience? Because that's actually something you love and you're a geek about. I was like, well, yeah, duh. Why don't I do that? <laughs> you know, and and. I needed a technology that was a great demonstration of what happens when you're no longer in control of, of who you are. And a brain-computer interface was actually perfect mm. in mm. to that. And it also fed all the, you know, uh, ever since I took Robert Sapolsky's human behavioral biology class, I have, you know, it, in summer school when he was illegally moonlighting at the new school uh, <laughs> for Rockefeller University, uh, I've been a brain geek and it made a lot of sense to use that as the filter. But I also knew I wanted to tell the story of a man, Peter Bernhardt, who wanted the American dream because I, I had personally witnessed in my own family and in others the dangers of pursuing the American dream and not understanding what the price is. And there's always a price. And I wanted to pull these ideas together of that kind of a character with that kind of level of technology, next stage, uh, human enhancement and beyond. And what could I tell about that story? And then, to be really frank, I went to Alexander Dumas because he's the man. And I thought, revolution is the Count of Monte Cristo. Mm -hmm. I wanted to tell a Count of Monte Cristo mm -hmm. story. And to be really spreading the secrets, identity is the three musketeers, but in this case, the lead is Athos, not D'Artagnan. Huh. Uh, you know, Ver Veronica is D'Artagnan. And in... The last book, it's The Man in the Iron Mask. Oh, man. Oh. That's interesting. And they get less and less like the books I'm, I'm, I'm funneling because the, the story tells you what it's going to be. Like, that's another thing. You know, right. you, get, you get so deep in story. The, story is, the characters tell you who they are. The story tells you who it is. And you're just like along for the ride. <laughs> um, and that's, you know, wherever your subconscious is going, it's going. Um, uh, now I understand why you're doing the Mythos Project. So you're you're very much on this tip of recycling and reinterpreting these age-old narratives. You know, in a way, you mentioned Frankenstein before, right? Frankenstein's a replay of the Prometheus myth. myth. Absolutely. People, that's exactly People think right. Frankenstein's a monster, but it's actually Dr. Frankenstein, right, that we're writing about. 
and he uh, he's the guy who played messed around with nature you know brought back fire okay so so this is about revitalizing mythology um that's an interesting notion and yet you do it in a way where the characters aren't archetypes they're not generic and that happens a lot in science fiction where you have characters who represent something and they're not very good characters as a result yeah. they're kind of one-dimensional yeah your characters are very relatable they're like people and there's an element of humanity there and i have to believe that that's informed by your deep commitment and interest in ethics that's that's what i had to conclude in, in preparing for this today i know that that's a passion for you and i know that it's a gaping uh, whole. It's a, it's a lacuna, if you will, in the technology industry, because we have people who are running these companies who are borderline sociopaths with no grounding in ethics, in ethics or any kind of philosophy. Talk a little bit about ethics in technology. It started with my interest in empathy. Uh, I had made a connection back in 2006 between the discovery and naming of mirror neurons as a place where empathy is created in the brain. We still don't know actually now what they are, um, but their relation to storytelling. So I ended up writing a paper that became this weirdly foundational paper in like neuropsychology. <laughs> it's still cited. It's crazy. Um, but it's about how we as humans need stories to basically create empathy for the other. And then I wrote a, a follow-up paper called Yucky Gets Yummy, How Speculative Fiction Creates Society, where I map the uh, development of the other in speculative fiction to our feelings about the other, how he goes from villain to hero, from non-empathetic to deeply empathetic. And that's actually where the, the, the ethics came in. So for me, I look at, as you just said, I look at Silicon Valley, I see a lot of young people, mostly young men, who haven't, they've learned their coding, they've learned their technology, but they haven't learned why. Why are they doing what they're doing? What they know what makes people tick because they hire psychologists to tell them how to make things addictive, how to make things sticky. But they don't actually understand why we want to be in community or communication with each other. And it's like they're missing these enormous holes, uh, as you said, of ethics, but also of humanity. We only exist as a species because we learned to live with each other. And we'll only continue to exist as a species if we create ethics and rules that allow us to coexist. I talk a lot about the noosphere. I'm actually working with a, a group, another ethics group, um, taking the ideas of Teilhard de Chardin, Vernansky, and Leroy, and this concept of the noosphere as another layer around the planet. You have the geosphere is the rock, the biosphere is the layer of life around it. And now literally around us is a global brain that we've created. And we're all nodes in that brain, whether we like it or not. And we're so connected that if we don't learn a new set of rules, yeah. we live with this noosphere that we have built. And which by the way, Tehard totally described you know, in the early and mid 20th century, he's like, and then we're going to build this thing. He just didn't call it an internet. It was crazy. I mean, it, it, the amount of detail he has, 
but the fact that he he a great futurist and a total uh, idol in Silicon Valley, by the way, which I find ironic because he was the most ethical man <laughs> I think I've ever read, uh, being a Jesuit priest as well. Um, there's a lack of consequences. I think the irony is we're all about as Silicon Valley futurists are often about what's the technological trend, but not what's the social ethical trend. What's the consequence to this? I saw this in scientific research doing my like book. Move fast I would, and uh, break stuff, right? Yeah, well, move fast and break stuff. But I also saw the scientists doing brain computer interfaces. And I would say, you know, hey, what about stuff I'm writing about? And they'd go, I don't want to talk about that. Nope. La, 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 la. Because they have to say it's for Alzheimer's and Parkinson's or they don't get funding. It takes a lot for somebody to say, well, what I really see is global telepathy with my brain computer interface. <laughs> um, so if we don't start considering everyone that we meet as part of a greater whole of us in an ethical sense, well, you we're going to have well, a very well, difficult noosphere, and we're seeing it right now. But it's even even in practical terms, if you look at where COVID broke down, a lot of that was where we didn't have a collective approach. And if you take climate, um, you know, food scarcity from, you know, climate change and things like that, unless we take a collective human, human view to this, then you're just going to, um, you know, uh, the problems of tribalism and all those things that we, we talk about historically, they're just going to be amplified by those, those world pressures. So the only way to get to an optimal state for humanity is collectively. But, you know, I, how do we break down those, those economic barriers to that and those, um, those you know, uh, cultural or, or national boundaries to that? So in it, so this group I'm working with, uh, Human Energy, which is working with the idea of the noosphere, um, one of the things I've been brought on to do is create a series of videos about the future of the noosphere. But what I want to focus on is exactly what you're talking about. And it's the, you know, how are we already seeing positive futures being made in with collective groups in smaller scales, but that can be scaled whether it's regenerative agriculture or working on climate change. I mean, some of the regenerative agriculture work I'm seeing around the world, I've been hooked up in some of these global networks, mind boggling. I, if everybody did this, we'd be, we'd be fine. <laughs> um, there, there are so many people doing positive things, but we're not hearing about it. And I want people to hear about it because the more people who do, the more young people look at that and go, you know what? I want to do that. I want to be a part of something like that because that's constructive. I want to learn how to do that. I want to bring it mm. back to wherever I live and see how I can adapt it to where I live. I, I think we're seeing some signs of that now uh, emerging, right? So certainly in the Web3 space, there's a generational shift where everybody who's crusty and kind of our generation is looking at it skeptically because there's a lot of techno babble and word salad and you know terminology thrown around and a lot of deceit and fraud, uh, particularly in the crypto space right now. But among the younger generation, they see it as uh, room for possibility. And they see it that uh, our generation has left behind a broken world and an economic system that is uh, that doesn't favor equality, that favors unequal distribution of wealth. Uh, they see accumulating problems coming from globalization, uh, you know, the degradation of environments and so forth. So that generation looks critically at the work of the, of the baby boom generation. Uh, and they're trying to posit an alternative scenario. 
um, whether or not it's aptly expressed, you know, maybe at this stage, it's a little ungainly. You know, as we get to close this session out, I think what we ought to do is uh, is think a little bit about the biggest implications here, because we have been living in hyperconnectivity, right? So for the last 30 years, we've all experienced this process where, you know, first it was millions and hundreds of millions, and now billions of people are connected. And at any given moment, you can understand what just about everybody is thinking about just about every topic. That hasn't worked out so well. It hasn't led to like, you know, global dawning awareness or a greater consensus. It's led to tribalization. It's led to hate. It's led to, you know, the um, in a weird way, the, the kind of weaponization of free speech uh, and the demonization of people who who dare to think about unconventional ideas. So, so give us something positive to go out with here tonight as you think about the noosphere uh, and as you think about your future work by building a new mythos uh, and, as, and as you help us construct new scenarios for the future. PJ, give us some hope. Give us a reason to be optimistic. I think the reason to be optimistic is we've been through this before. We go through these huge paradigm shifts, and in every one of these times, we create new stories that help us adapt to a new future. We're going to do that. The new mythos, I, I'm just showing people all the different branches of how we're going to create new stories, which ultimately create new ethics. Stories are how we teach ourselves what to do and how to be. So if we can tell these stories, create these new myths, build new ethics, that help guide us, I think we have the capabilities. We're just gonna go through a bit of a rough patch to get there. All right, well, that's uh, that's all we've got for tonight. PJ Manny, the author of Revolution, nice Identity, yeah. and Conscience. Uh, those, are the, uh, those are the Phoenix Horizon trilogy, uh, has been our guest this evening. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts, not just about the great mess that humanity finds itself in and maybe our way out, but also sharing us a, a really intimate glimpse at how you work and how you grapple with these topics and how you process this information yourself. That kind of methodology is always what we're curious about here at The Futurists. Thanks a lot for having us. Thank you, PJ. You've been listening to The Futurist. We'll see you again next week. In fact, we'll see you in the, in the future. future. That's it for this week. If you like the show, make sure to give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform or share it with a friend or share it on social media. We'll see you again next week with more Breaking Banks.